Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Center for Baptist Renewal podcast. I am Brandon Smith on the board of directors here at CBR, along with Luke Stamps, also one of our uh, directors. And CBR is a group of Orthodox Evangelical Baptists committed to retrieving the great tradition for the renewal of Baptist faith and practice. So if you enjoy what you hear today, we invite you to check out our website, centerforbaptistrenewal.com. Uh, you can also follow us on social media, on Twitter at, at Baptist Renewal, uh, Facebook forward slash Baptist Renewal, and also check out our podcast and YouTube. So you may be listening to this in audio or watching this on YouTube, and we post them in both places. So don't forget to sub uh, subscribe, tell your friends, etc. And now I'm I'm run out of uh, mock words uh, copy that I have to say. So, uh, Luke, glad to have you on. This first time you and I have done one together, so it'll be fun. Yeah, should be fun. So we are talking about uh, Athanasius on the Incarnation. So today is the second book in our Theology Classics Reading Challenge, and Luke is the expert on all things Christology, the master of diothelitism, which is better than uh, the opposite. And uh, so we're going to talk through the book together. I teach through on the Incarnation uh, every semester. And this is something near and dear to Luke's heart, all of our hearts, but the two of us probably deal with this text a lot and these ideas a lot. So we decided to tackle this together. So I want to do a little bit of a, a background here just about who Athanasius is and then what are some background and context to the book. So Athanasius uh, is born about 296 to 298 AD and comes up into uh, basically, basically he's a deacon uh, in Alexandria under Alexander of Alexandria, who is sort of the great champion of Nicaea, who kind of gets forgotten underneath Athanasius. He is Athanasius's bishop, and in fact is the bishop of Alexandria, and sort of the key player in the Council of Nicaea. But on the Incarnation, a lot of people assume that this was written against Arius, that this was written by Athanasius in the middle of this debate, but actually uh, most people say it was written probably before the Arian controversy. So the Arian controversy picks up about AD 319, which means that uh, Athanasius probably wrote on the Incarnation before that, because there's no indication here that he's interacting with Arius, and you think he'd bring it up probably if it was. So he probably wrote this in his late teens or early 20s, which Luke and I were laughing about how we were, you know, like watching Dawson's Creek or uh, hanging out on like online chat rooms uh, in our late teens and early 20s. And this man is writing a, a, one of the greatest theological works ever. So uh, he, he Dawson's does Creek, though. Dawson's Creek. What a, what a yeah. classic teenage angsty. I mean, that was right in my time right there. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're gonna, if you're gonna, you know, waste your time doing something, Dawson's Creek is not the worst thing you could have been doing. You know, so. so anyway, so, that, so this book, you'll notice as you read it, particularly those who are kind of following along with us here in the month of February, he doesn't talk about Arius, he doesn't get into those things. But one of the, the beauties of this is that he models really all of the major arguments and many of the major presuppositions that go into the Council of Nicaea, and the argument against Arius. And one of the things I always tell my students that's instructive about this is that you know, the Council of Nicaea didn't invent this uh, orthodoxy, right? They're not the ones that said, well, this is actually what we believe, and the church was divided on this. Actually, Athanasius shows us that this is already happening long before the Council of Nicaea. And so as he rises to become a bishop in uh, 328, three years after Nicaea, it's already settled at that point. And the Nash's, Athanasius is kind of off and running as, uh, in some ways, kind of the point guard uh, of the Nicaea team for the next uh, 50 years or so. So uh, if you, Luke, want to just give a little bit of maybe a, a broad summary of the book, and then we can just kind of banter back and forth about some of the things we like in the book or some things we want to highlight. Yeah. Yeah, I guess before we even jump into um, the the text of the book itself, <clears throat> the version that I think we recommended that a lot of people get um, is the the popular patristics um, and it, it's probably worth mentioning something about the, <clears throat> the introduction um, mm -hmm. that C.S. Lewis 
uh, includes, it was a, I forget the original publication of that, um, that introduction, but it was attached to this book um, during Lewis's own day, uh, a version of, of Athanasius work. Uh, but the, the, the introduction is, is a sort of classic in its own right of sort of 20th yeah. century, um, you know, theology where um, Lewis is, is arguing for the, the benefit of reading old books. And I remember when I first read that years ago as a college or seminary student, like what, a, what a profound impact it had, like this, this idea of letting the, the fresh wind of the past blow into our present moment. And, you know, not being afraid to read old books and every, you know, for every one book you, you read that's new, you should read two that, 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 that are old. Um, as he argues, not because older is necessarily better, but because older is different. Yeah. You know, like if you read everyone today, they're going to be assuming thing. Everyone on left and right and center and everyone on every perspective are going to be assuming certain things of our age that we don't even think to question. Whereas reading the past sort of lets, you know, gives us that fresh perspective of, of another era. So anyway, that, that, I don't know, you may not have that, that version of it. I'm actually reading out of, a, out of a different version. Um, but I have that one and it's, and it's a benefit to read that. But anyway, in terms of Athanasius overall argument, as you pointed out, this, this book is not, is not polemical in nature. So he's not, he's not writing in, in defense of the Trinity against Arius, but really setting out a, a positive case, um, I mean, there, there are some polemics at the end as he's answering, answering objections, but right. he's mainly just setting out a positive case for um, why, why did the word, the eternal word of God, the son of God become incarnate. He addresses it to a certain Macarius, uh, which may not be an actual name. It may just be a title. The, the Greek word is the blessed one. Uh, so uh, at any event, it's not, it's not written as you, as you point out in, in the, the heat of the controversy, but more, this more positive case, he begins with creation, in, interestingly. Um, so the, the sort of prologue to, to the book, the book is, doesn't have uh, any clear divisions. Uh, it's sort of one continuous thought, but the, the, the key transitions are pretty apparent as you read through the book. But, yeah. um, you know, he begins with creation, uh, which is interesting. Uh, as you think about incarnation, it presupposes creation. Um, and so his argument is basically that God made the world good. Again, there are a lot of Greek uh, thinkers uh, in the background here uh, who would who would deny uh, something like that. Uh, but God made the world good. He made humans as the the crown of His creation. Um, uh, out of nothing, He made the world out of nothing. But He made humans with this special dignity of having relationship with God, uh, of having held out to them the the possibility of incorrupt incorruptibility um, by contemplating God and humanity rejected that gift. Not only did they have the gift of, of being created, but they had the, the added gift of grace of being given this status uh, of those who could hold, hold, hold out hope for incorruptibility while humanity denied all that through their sin mm -hmm. and sort of plunged themselves into ruin and, and corruption and death. Uh, and so that's the problem that then sets up the solution of the incarnation. And so uh, Athanasius, you know, considers what what are the sort of possible means of, of repairing this breach that's been made. Uh, human uh, effort is not going to get it done. Human repentance alone mm -hmm. uh, can't sort of earn back the dignity of, of incorruptibility. 
So instead, what we need is, is one who is true God and true man. I mean, that's the language that would come later. But I mean, that's essentially the argument is that um, it's also very similar to Anselm's argument that, that would be made years, you know, centuries later. Right. And we're going to come back to that one um, in this reading challenge. But, uh, but for Athanasius, um, only one who is God, only, only the word who made us, right, the, the eternal word of God who made us can be the one who, uh, who overcomes our, our corruption and our death. And at the same time, only one who is truly man um, can be a, a fit representative and substitute on, on behalf of man. And so that's the argument uh, in terms of why God became man uh, in order to, to heal this corruption, uh, overcome the sentence of death. Part of that is just God reveals himself to us in Jesus. So there's, there's, a, there's an interesting piece before he actually gets to the death of Christ, which is, is important for this work as well. Uh, it, it's in, in, even in the incarnation, there's, there's this purpose of, of revelation. Yeah. I think normally for us Protestants, we, we tend to think about the incarnation only in terms of atonement, death on the cross to, you know, pay for sins. Uh, but, and actually Athanasius says, says that too. I mean, that's important, obviously hugely important component of it as well. But before he gets there, it's, it's Jesus Christ, the, the word of God becomes man in order to reveal to us the way to the father. Yeah. So it's this divine revelation that's given in person and in, in the person of the word. So anyway, and then it, after he expounds more on the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, repairing uh, this corruption and death, uh, then he answers objections first to the Jews. Uh, so there's a lot of scripture there where he's saying, listen, look at your own uh, sacred scriptures of the Old Testament uh, and all of these prophecies, all of these types and shadows were ultimately leading us to Christ. And then he answers objections to the pagans. Um, and then there's an epilogue that actually includes some really encouraging words about how we should read the, the Bible properly. Yeah. So anyway, that's just a kind of a high level view of what, what's going on in the book. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that that is always uh, impresses on me when I'm reading the church fathers is uh, you kind of mentioned that epilogue, the fact that they are always pointing back to scripture, right? This is a right reading of scripture. This isn't just sort of theological wordplay or something like that. And so he, he obviously, even the way that you're talking there, you obviously hear echoes of John 1 all throughout there, which is obviously a huge text uh, in the early church. And John 1 is really just a theological commentary on Genesis 1, for lack of a better word. So John is picking up on the fact, or Athanasius is picking up on the fact that this is how the Bible is revealing Jesus as this word who was there in the beginning. And so you, know, you mentioned that he doesn't talk as much about uh, the cross and resurrection in the incarnation. He also doesn't spend much time at all talking about the virgin birth. So oftentimes at Christmas, when we bring up incarnation, we think automatically virgin birth which obviously he doesn't deny. Uh, but at the same time, he is not focusing on that. The incarnation is this entire work of Christ in the flesh, this revelation of God from beginning to end and even uh, onward, right? In his ascension and in his uh, session and whatnot. So that's another thing to think about as you're reading through it is that he's not going to make all those moves that you expect him to make. This isn't a Christmas sermon that you hear typically. This is this broader uh, theology of revelation and incarnation. Yep, that's good. So let me, uh, we'll kind of just start walking through here. I'll, I'll kind of toss out my, one of my favorite parts of the book and kind of where I think he starts going here is I love his uh, discussion there in the first couple of chapters about this, uh, you know, quote unquote divine dilemma. So God creates mankind and he says, uh, I want you to know me. I make you in my image. I want to have a relationship with you. And if you sin, I will punish you. 
Those are kind of the two promises God makes, right? And so the way Athanasius poses it is, okay, when sin enters the world, they have disobeyed God and their sin has uh, ruined their or, or uh, damaged their relationship with God. And so then he says, what is God to do, right? So it's kind of this divine dilemma. What is God to do? Because God's not a liar. So if God's not a liar, then he must have relationship with mankind and he must punish sin. And so I think that's really instructive when I talk to students about, well, why does God punish sinners? Why doesn't he just snap his fingers and, and uh, just fix everything and then not punish anybody? And on the one hand, we have no idea, uh, right? We, God doesn't give us an answer to why sin entered the world and all this kind of stuff in terms of why he allowed it or whatever. But Athanasius does a good job of saying it is consistent with God's character to both save and punish. And so I like how he sets that up at the beginning and kind of walks through, uh, well, what else did you, it's almost like, what else did you expect God to do? If God is not a liar, then these are the things that are going to happen. And then he kind of launches off into his uh, conversation about, well, how is God going to fix death? Well, he's going to have to do it himself. And then mankind now with their limited knowledge, with their fallenness now turns to idolatry because all they see is the material world, right? This sort of their vision of the spiritual world world has been so damaged that now they are uh, turning to idols. And so what does he do? He puts on flesh and walks among us, which is a really beautiful way to say uh, God literally meets us in every place that we, that we are, right? It's not that God sits back distant and says, uh, Hey, once you guys figure it out and come to me, he says, Oh, okay. You're just going to look at the material world and worship that fine. I'll put on a body and come stand in front of you. Uh, yeah, that's paraphrasing of course, but I think that's such a beautiful picture of the extent to which God is willing uh, to keep his promises and to have relationship with us is that he is willing to, in some sense, step into our mess because that's the only way it's going to work. And we, we affirm that, you know, as evangelicals, as Protestants, as Christians, we affirm that, but I think the way Athanasius puts it, uh, sets it in a, a, a much bigger context of what is God doing in the world and how is God setting about to fix it? Yeah. Let me be a little provocative here. I just thought of this while you were talking about that. Uh, hey, no, hold on a second. When, when Matt and I did the Irenaeus, when we said that you were our dad <laughs> and that we were going to be provocative without you. So you're yeah. supposed to keep, keep it straight here, but if you want to go provocative, then that's yeah, it. I don't know. Maybe this won't <laughs> provoke too many, but okay. sometimes I hear, um, there, I mean, there's, well, sometimes I hear a lot of Theo bros get really mad about uh, certain song lyrics. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, there's a popular praise song. I, I'm not a big praise and worship like contemporary Christian music person. So I don't know bands or, or, or names of songs or anything like that. But there's a song out there that you all probably have heard that says something like, um, you didn't want heaven without us. Mm-hmm. You know, you know that song? I mean, yep. does that ring a yeah, bell? Yeah, that's right. You know what yeah. song that is? You didn't want heaven without us. Yeah. yeah. So you brought heaven down. Yep. You know, and there's a certain, again, there's a certain kind of uh, extremely online uh, reform Theo bro who will look at that and say, um, you know, well, that's just not, that's not a, a good picture of God because God doesn't say, you know, God is not, you know, I mean, I'm not sure exactly what the argument is. I mean, basically that like God doesn't have a need, doesn't have a lack. Right. And so he doesn't, yep. you know, which is obviously true. God doesn't save us because he needs us. Um, that's not what the lyric says in any event. It says you didn't want heaven without us. Right. Right. Uh, and I think there's something that's, that's, that's deeply Athanasian about that. Not un, unintentionally. I'm sure that, that yeah, song. I'm sure it's, I'm Athanasian. sure it's unintentional, but yeah. <laughs> but you know, the, 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 there is this sense in Athanasius that, that God, um, doesn't want to be without us. Yeah. You know? And that um, is QED by the fact that he puts on flesh and walks among us. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's like, clear. 
yeah, it's not like God had to do this, um, but God wanted to do this. God, God didn't want eternity without his image bearers. Yeah. And I just don't think, I mean, even those of us who have a very high view of God and a high view of God's sovereignty and Impass- salvation. Impassibility, immutability, the whole thing. Yeah. Like there's no reason why we have to be skittish about language like that, that God, mm-hmm. God could have made a world without the fall. God could have made a world without redemption. He's not bound uh, by some necessity to, to save us, mm-hmm. but in his mercy and his, and his, in his divine freedom, he, he wanted eternity to include us Yeah, and, and would, you know, refuse to let our sin forestall his good plans and purposes for creation. Yeah. So I don't know. I just, that's something that just came to my mind. I thought, yeah. yeah. And there, and there's a biblical truth that I think we both affirm, which is that um, uh, God is the one who receives glory and that God in, in some sense has created us for his glory but I think that's part of it that gets over-exaggerated to the point of God doesn't really care about you that much. He just cares about the fact that you would glorify him. And even it's even stronger than that. Like, it's more like, uh, you know, God really hates you. Like, I'm not even sure why God would even pay attention to you. <laughs> yeah. Why are we even here? What uh, are we even doing here? Other than just the fact that God is sort of this, this divine megalomaniac who wants people to praise him, but he doesn't really, I mean, he, you're just a worm to God, you know? Yeah. And, you know, obviously there's there's there, there's some truth in the fact that god doesn't need us again god doesn't we're not feeling any lack in god yeah um but it's just d- divine benevolence that we exist at all you know yeah. god god loved us into existence and god is loving us into redemption yeah and it's pure free grace there's just nothing um god could have glorified himself in any number of ways you know but he chose this way to yeah. include us in his eternal felicity and we just need to stand in awe of that. That that is the glory of God. It's the glory of God and mercy and love, you know. So yeah. we can't pit God's glory against His benevolence to us. Yeah. Uh, so what is some what are some sections that you want to bring out? I know we talked a little bit about the Calvinisticum and, and some of that stuff. He starts anticipating there. So yeah, yeah. So I mean, I, I read this book uh, with a peculiar eye, I guess. I mean, some of my own interests in in Christology, uh, but a few things that I. I uh, always notice when I look through this book, um, one, again, as you point out, like you, you have an affirmation here of, I mean, cl- classical Christology, you know, that, that obviously this is, this is at the fountainhead of what classical Christology will become. Um, but you see things like um, the, the, the so-called extra Calvinisticum, uh, which is obviously an anachronism. It's named after Calvin. Yeah. If you don't know what that is, basically the extra Calvinisticum, um, was uh, the idea that that emerged in Reformation era debates over the presence of Christ and the Lord's Supper? I mean, that's kind of the background. Um, but anyway, the Calvinists in those debates uh, said basically that the Son of God is not limited to His human nature. Um, it's not as if His deity was sort of squished down into a human body or something like that. But the, the Son of God continues to be omnipresent as God. Um, and the Lutherans didn't like that because they said, no, in becoming one with human nature, there's kind of this sharing of attributes between the two natures, essentially, so that such that wherever Christ is, his body is. And so they sort of lampooned the Calvinist view as Calvin's extra, right? That, that, got, that they, The idea that the, the word is sort of spilling out of the body of Jesus mm-hmm. or something like that. But what Calvin is actually 
arguing and what the Calvinists after him argue is, is consistent with what came before in the patristic era and in the medieval era. Uh, so much so that, that one Calvinist um, theologian named David Willis uh, in a book called Calvin's Catholic Christology suggested that we really need a new name for the extra Calvinisticum. It's probably better term the, the extra Catholicum or the extra patristicum, because it's something that was affirmed long before Calvin. And you actually see that here in Athanasius. I wonder if I can uh, find it really quickly. I think I wrote down the chapters in, yeah, in chapter 17, 17 and 18. Yeah. So, uh, so I'm just going to read a little bit of this so you can get a sense of, of what he's saying. Uh, this is chapter 17. He says, for he was not, as might be imagined, circumscribed in the body, nor while present in the body was he absent elsewhere nor while he moved in the body was the universe left void of his working in providence. But thing most marvelous, word as he was, so far from being contained by anything, he rather contained all things himself. And just as while present in the whole of creation, he is at once distinct in being from the universe and present in all things by his own power, giving order to all things, and so on. And then a little bit down in that uh, same chapter, he says, for he was not bound to his body. And then, and then a bit later, and this was the wonderful thing that he was at once walking as man and as the word was quickening or giving life to all things. And so you have the same, the same affirmation that you see in Calvin right here in Athanasius, right? Yeah. That, that it's not that he's two persons doing, you know, like some separate thing, but the one person of the son, the, the word of God is in one sense, in virtue of his human nature, in a body, bound to that body, but as the divine son of God is continuing to uphold the universe by the word of his power, to quicken, to enliven all things. He doesn't, in, 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 the, in the strictest sense, he doesn't leave heaven to become man. That's how we sometimes describe it. Even, yeah. even the creed uses that language that he came down from heaven and was made man. Um, but that, that's only a metaphor, right? That, 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 that sort of spatial metaphor of yeah. the son of God in heaven coming down and becoming incarnate. Um, we can't take that in the strict and proper sense to mean that he was sort of spatially located in heaven and then he left there to become incarnate. Yeah. Um, that's, that's a mistake. Um, instead he's, he's filling the world at every moment, uh, because he's the om omnipresent son of God and yet has taken this unique relationship, uh, by assuming a human nature, um, to himself. And so anyway, that's just interesting to me, uh, uh maybe to others as well to see that um, part of the way we hold together the doctrine of the incarnation is not losing either side. You know, each, each nature retains its distinct property. Um, it's not as if the divinity was sort of uh, forced like a puzzle piece to fit into the humanity. And that's yeah. all that you say about the son. No, he continues to be the divine son of God uh, immutably as he always and always will be. Yeah, he uses that language of uh, it's not as though the divine nature has consumed or swallowed up the human nature, you know, mm -hmm. as though human nature is no longer there. So he kind of says uh, he uses the metaphor of uh, Christ can uh, eat but not starve, right? He is truly human, but he's not just been consumed to the point that he's just a, a helpless, frail human or not human. But he has a really interesting metaphor there, I think, between the eating but not starved or hungry but not starved is what he says. Yeah. Uh, so that he can put on weak flesh but not be completely consumed by it because he's still the God of the universe holding all things together by the power of his word. So mm, That's right. Uh, so uh, another thing that we had, that we had um, talked about a little bit was this idea of 
uh, he starts to kind of move into what we would kind of now call substitutionary atonement, mm. for example. So maybe talk through a little bit the atonement aspect of what he's bringing up there, starting, I think, what, chapter 20 or so, when he kind of yeah. shifts into that language, that, that conversation. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we need to say at the outset of, of that conversation, like we, we don't want to be guilty of some kind of gross anachronism to say that, well, you have like the Protestant doctrine of penal substitution yeah. right there in Athanasius. I mean, that's it's a mistake to, to read back the, the Reformation era theology um, of the atonement into the church fathers. At the same time, it's kind of hard to miss some overlap right i mean so i i just noticed in uh in chapter 20 there um he uh where he start, starts talking about the cross um he says uh it's the sentence that begins but since but since it was necessary also that the debt owing from all should be paid again so there's that's you know that's that's obviously biblical language right though but mm-hmm. the, the idea of debt a debt that needs paid Right. That's that's language that we often use about the cross. Right. He paid something. He, mm-hmm. You know, we, we, th- we speak about it in terms of a penalty uh, here. He, it's the metaphor, the sort of financial metaphor of debt. Um, but he goes on to say what that debt is. He says, um, for, as I have already said, it was owing that all should die. All right. So this is a debt that in, involves a penalty of death. You know, it's not just like paying back money, but um, but actually the debt that we owe brings with it the penalty of death for which a special cause indeed he came among us to this intent um, after the proofs of his godhead from his works he next offered up his sacrifice also on behalf of all yielding his temple to death in the stead of all so there's a language of substitution right so he's coming to 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 pay the the uh, the debt that carries with it a penalty of death and he does so by doing it in our stead and on our behalf. And so, I mean, it's not, you know, again, it's not like a fully worked doctrine in the same way that we see with Calvin, but it certainly is picking up on biblical language as, as Calvin and the reformed tradition did as well. Uh, and, and these notions that, that aren't, uh, we normally think, well, everybody before Anselm was, um, was the ransom theory was something right. about, you know, paying off the devil, um, in order to, 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 to ransom humanity from, from the devil's captivity. I mean, that too, you know, is a biblical theme, you know, maybe distorted in some ways in some of the early church fathers, but, uh, but it's just not the case that that was the only thing that we find in the patristic era, but we do see these, these hints of substitution in Athanasius. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder if the fact that, you know, he kind of breezes through that in about a paragraph or two, at least in how it's formatted. Uh, in, in most of the translations. I always wonder at times, biblical authors do this too, where they say these things as though they're true and then move on um, to where like we want this long systematic theology of atonement from Athanasius. And Athanasius is really just saying the thing that's already being said to move on to the point he's trying to make. And so sometimes you know you might want him to say a little bit more than he does, uh, but he just he just says it. He just says he's got to pay the penalty and here's this thing. And he revert, refers back to the very beginning where he says that, God is the one who is going to redeem us. He, ha- he is the one who has both uh, put the penalty upon us because of our sin, or I guess we put it upon ourselves, and he now is holding us to it because he's not a liar. And yet he also is coming to save us from it. You know, so he, he's just he's using this language that he's already used. But again, yeah, I think, I think what you're pointing out there is good because I think we're expecting him 
as 21st century Christians to give us the systematic account or else it's not whatever, you know, what, what right. we want yeah. it to be or whatever. So yeah, weigh in on the debates on the models of the atonement or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And that's just oh. not their concern. Yeah. yeah. It's not a conversation they're having. Um, so moving on a little bit, one of the things I, I wanted to bring out as well is he does get, you know, you mentioned he gets polemical a little bit toward the end here. Um, and he moves into this refutation of the Jews and the refutation of the pagans or the Greeks, however you want to uh, translate that. And he, I noticed how uh, I picked it up really the first time, the last time I read it, because I think I had been reading more apostolic fathers and earlier ones. But it's interesting how Justin has a version of this. There's the refutation of the Jews with Trifo and then the refutation, the, the refutation of the Greeks. Uh, Origen will do this as well uh, in his interactions with uh, Celsus and others, right? And uh, it seems to be a common refrain, uh, particularly up until the Arian controversy, of picking up on really what Paul is talking about, where Paul is talking about that on the one hand, you have the Jews and their unbelief, and then you have the Gentiles and their mocking, right? And so he starts chapter 33. He says, perhaps the Jews do not believe and the Greeks mock for these reasons, right? That, that how could it be that a savior would die? And so he says, this is exactly what Paul says, right? The cross is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Greeks. And so he does this thing that Justin and all these others do, where he says, the unbelieving Jews have their rebuttal from the scriptures, which they also read from beginning to end. And simply every inspired book proclaims these things. And also the very words themselves are obvious. And he goes on to quote Isaiah 714, the behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. They will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And so he moves into this sort of biblical argument against the Jews to say, okay, now all these things are true. He starts all the way back at creation. It's kind of full-fledged uh, account of the word of God and the revelation and salvation. And then turns to the Jews on the one hand and says, uh, your scriptures say this, which is, again, exactly what Justin says to Trifo, for example. These are no longer your scriptures. These are our scriptures now. Mm -hmm. uh, and they are only your scriptures in the fact that you recognize that they are a testimony to Christ. And then he goes through and just does this. Um, I mean, it's like the most, in some ways, it's like the most high level, uh, or not high level, but the most obvious. He does like Isaiah 714. He does Isaiah 53. He's just like hitting these like major ones. Like this is obviously Jesus and this is obviously Jesus and shows, uh, you know, the, the tradition, how the tradition is picking up on how they read the old Testament, right. And how they look at Christ in light of the old Testament. So I think that's the thing that's missed sometimes from this book is, is the debate will center on which rightly so uh, on the incarnation and what he's saying. But part of his bigger argument is how this is true for both the Jew and the Greek. Right. So there's this apologetics, probably not the right word, but this sort of apologia in a sense of uh, here is who Christ is in light of these differing worldviews. Yeah, that's good. I mean, because we tend to isolate doctrine, theology from evangelism. Um, and they just didn't in, in the early church. Right. I mean, it, it, apologetics was theology yeah. aimed at outsiders. Right. Yeah. It's not it's not as if it were some separate discipline. Um, and, yeah, I think that the a section like that, uh, the res response to the Jews, um, where he sort of, and there's lots of, in my, in my version of it, there's lots of footnotes with Bible verses, you know, yeah. so just all kinds of Bible from the old Testament. I mean, I think if you could, if you could read the Irenaeus on the apostolic preaching, read, uh, Justin's dialogue with Trifo and, and this section, you, you, that would give you a good snapshot of what Christians in the first three centuries were doing with the old Testament. Yep which I think is, is when I teach hermeneutics, I teach hermeneutics every fall. That's, I spent half the class basically trying to show people how uh, the, the history of interpretation, you know, yeah. show, show people how uh, Christians, especially in the pre-modern era, read 
the scriptures in light of Christ. And it, sh- it shows you the kind of maneuvers they made, you know, and the, the, the texts that they went to, but also the way that they got from those texts to Christ. And so that would just be an interesting study in itself to go back to each of these citations that Athanasius yeah. gives us and ask like, what, what, what interpretive maneuver is he doing to get there? Sometimes it's a direct prophecy. Sometimes though it's typology, yep. um, you know, and he even mentions, mentions that um, in this, in this chapter um, where he talks about the, the, the types that we have in the old Testament. Um, so this is, this is in uh, chapter 40. Yep. He says, and this was why Jerusalem stood till then, namely that there, that there they might be exercised in the types as a preparation for the reality. So that kind of types and reality or shadow and substance, which is, you know, new Testament terms too. Yeah. Um, you know, that this is a good, good way to see like how, how was it that the early Christians were actually reading the Bible? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Uh, he uses that to sort of transition to the Gentiles refutation of the Gentiles, which is kind of the last portion and he says, uh, you know, so the Jews, this is, these are the scriptures that uh, proclaim Christ. So uh, we are both reading the same scriptures, but you're reading them wrong. You know, it's pretty, pretty blunt there is the way that he talks about that. But then he moves to the Greeks and he says, uh, right at the beginning of chapter 41, he says, but one is utterly amazed at the Greeks who laugh at things that should not be mocked, but are blinded to their own disgrace, which having devoted themselves to stone and wood or to idols, to material things, they do not see. And so he goes through now talking about basically, well, the Greeks uh, will recognize, at least some Greeks that he's interacting with here, will recognize the fact that um, creation, that God is uh, in a relationship with creation in some way, shape or form. Now, obviously, there's different versions of that. But he says, if it is true that, uh, what do you say, but if it, it is fitting for him to come into the cosmos or into creation to be made known in the universe, it would also be fitting for him to appear in a human body. So if you know that God exists, Gentile, Greek, uh, you acknowledge this, then you already are acknowledging that he is a part of creation or is at least stepped into creation, right? Because he has communicated. If so, then why is it strange? I'm paraphrasing. Why is it strange to say that he could also appear in a human body? For if he is the one who made creation and speaks into creation, why could he not make himself part of creation? Which yeah. is, you know, when I talk to students about it, there's always that really interesting uh, dynamic where they're just like it, it blows like they can't get their mind around rightly so how is it that god can put on flesh and yet on the one hand not change anything about the divine nature and in any way shape or form not indicate mutability or anything and at the same time uh the the, the extra calvinistical question how is it that he can sustain the universe and yet be contained in a body and athanasius just says well why not if, if, if he is the one who has created all things, he can do whatever he wants in creation, yeah. right? And so he says to the, to the, to the Greeks, you, ha- you think this is foolish, but actually this is entirely logical uh, within your own understanding, uh, in fact, of how the world works. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, God is God. I mean, and of course, the, the incarnation is the, is the miracle of miracles. I mean, yeah. it's, and, it, and it remains a mystery. You know, it's beyond our comprehension, um, but it's still given the Christian conception of God as reasonable yeah yeah that's a good that's a good distinction to make there i don't want i don't want to minimize the fact that it is a mystery and that it's 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 insane in one sense that the creator could step into creation uh be athanasius uh, to the gentiles to the ones who say it's foolish he's like it's actually not that foolish if you want to take it from this perspective it's actually like you said reasonable so uh, all right well we're running close on time any any maybe final one final thing you want to bring up talk about before we before we close out yeah i mean another passage that i think uh is, is fairly well known in this book um, 
has to do with what's known as the doctrine of theosis. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is in uh, chapter 54. Um, he says, for he was made man that we might be made God, or he was humanized that we might be divinized. Um, and so it's the Greek term is theosis uh, that, that is sometimes used for that doctrine. The idea that God became one of us so that we might become one with him. Um, and we normally identify that with Greek fathers like Athanasius and with the East, with Eastern Christianity, Eastern yeah. Orthodoxy. But there, there actually is, um, if you study the history of the doctrine, there, is a ver- there are versions of theosis or participation in the divine nature, um, different languages used, but there are versions of that same theology in Western Christianity as well, both in Roman Catholicism and uh, among the reformers and in the Protestant uh, traditions as well. Like the idea that, yeah. not that, not that we ever become God full stop, right? We don't become one with God's essence. Right. Um, the creator creature distinction is still maintained, uh, but that what happens in in our glorification, to put it in terms that Protestants are usually more familiar with, what happens in our glorification is not just um, life without end, but it's actually um, a transfiguration of our natures by by virtue of our union with God, mm-hmm. um, such that we're actually trans. We're, we become more than we could have been otherwise. We become more than just what our natures were before. What, what we will be in the resurrection, in union with Christ, as we behold God in the beatific vision, is more than what we were, not just in our fallen state now, but even what, what, what Adam was in the beginning. Right. That what we become in the end is a, is, a, is a transformation, a transfiguration of our human natures in virtue of our union with God. And I think it's a biblical theme. I think that, that there's ways to work that uh, through... Uh, a Protestant theology, but you see that here, uh, that, that notion of this sort of, this sort of parabolic move, right? God becomes man in order to lift man up to God. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, right after that, he goes on to talk about how um, Christ in his own person is, is one who is both immortal and mortal, both yeah. immutable and mutable, both passable, impassable and passable. Um, and so the, what, would come to be known as the hypostatic union. That that language is not not there yet. It's another century off. Yeah. Uh, but but the the idea of the two natures of Christ, to put it in in fifth century language, the two natures of Christ united in His person. That's the paradigmatic um, model of what God wants for humanity. Not that we all, in our in our uh, glorification, become further hypostatic unions. It's not we, we don't have the same union with God that Christ has in yep. his own person, but that in, in, in union with Christ by faith, we then participate in the life of God himself. I mean, think about the way that, that Jesus talks about it in John 17, you know, that, yeah. that they might be one, even as, as the father and the son are one that we're invited into the very divine life of the Trinity. Yeah. And that's, and that's one of the big misconceptions, I think, even about Eastern language. I mean, obviously they're going to take it further than, than probably your average Protestant would, or perhaps you and I would, but when Athanasius is using this language or Gregory or whoever is using this theosis language, obviously, like obviously based on their doctrine of the Trinity and doctrine of God, they are obviously not saying that we become gods. It's yeah. not some sort of uh, proto-Mormonism or something, right? Like that's not right. what they're, th- that would be a complete contradiction of everything that they're actually trying to do. Right. And because so I think that's where that needs to be yeah. pointed out is like, that's a contradiction of their theology if that's what they're trying to say. Right. 
because not even in the case of Christ does the human nature become one with the divine essence. Yeah. Right? Even in the case of Christ, the human nature remains a human nature. Yeah. It just is is united to a divine person in the Son. So, so yeah, they're clearly not saying that somehow the creator creature distinction is blurred or or obliterated or that yeah. we somehow become one with God's essence. Um, that's not at all what, what they would have been teaching, but you still have the strong sense of, of union with God in virtue mm-hmm. of Christ's work that I think is something that, that, that we can recover as Protestants. Yeah. And I, you know, one of the ways I've tried to, and you can, you can tell me if you think this is heresy, um, it's fine. But, uh, one of the ways I've, I've tried to explain it sometimes is to say that, uh, you know, the distinction ultimately, as you mentioned between us and Adam and Eve is Adam and Eve were able to fall. They, they, they were not uh, united with God in the, in the same way that we will be united with Christ. And so a student will ask me, well, w- would there be a second fall? And I'd say, well, no, because the distinction between us and Adam and Eve is that we are united to uh, the Christ who is God. And so there is, because he's impeccable, because he's unable to sin, uh, he would have to sin in order for us to all fall into sin because we are united with him. And so that that really ups the ante on what it means to be truly human and what it means to be uh, united with God. So you can tell me if that's heresy, but I think that I yeah, think that's no, right. <laughs> that's right. And and I think just the the, the principle that uh, the eschaton is better than the proton. Yeah, the, the, right. the last is better than the first. Yeah, uh, we're not just going to return to a a, a prelapsarian Edenic state, uh, but God has something better in store, right? Yeah, uh, and and we've seen. Christ as the first fruits of that in his resurrection from the dead. Yeah. And whether you want to get into the debates about whether the incarnation would have happened anyway or whatever, there is a sense in what I think is, is clearly laid out in scripture is we don't know why God allowed the fall to happen. We don't know why he created beings who could fall. What we do know is that he is not surprised. He has predestined this plan before the foundation of the world, that he would make this mystery known, that he would send his son. And that ultimately makes gives us a better future and a better eschaton than ever Adam and Eve were, were even promised in a sense, right? Or at least uh, not re- fully realized. Uh, so it's almost as though sin had to happen. Uh, this is all, we're all di- diving into divine mysteries here. Uh, but it's almost as though these things would have had to happen for us to, to reach this kind of level of where we're at, uh, where we will be in the eschaton. Yeah, now, there's there's some debate about like whether or not Athanasius uh, teaches that uh, the yeah. idea of of you know is the is the uh, the fall into sin necessary for the incarnation, or would God have become incarnate anyway? Some people yeah. would point to Athanasius as saying that God would become incarnate anyway, and yeah. you know th- th- that's a debate. I w- we should have that debate sometime on this podcast, like the idea of of incarnation anyway. Would yeah. Christ have become uh, one of us, even if there were no sin, yeah. uh, that may seem like a, like a hopelessly speculative and even irreverent question, um, to even ask, but I do think it's important. Um, yeah. I've, I've given some thought to it, but I won't, I won't share those thoughts here. Yeah. I, I actually, I realized once I brought it up that you and I, you've brought this up enough times. I was like, I might yeah. be setting up a tangent after all, but yeah, whether or not it was to happen anyway, I think what, what we can certainly say is that, um, that God was not surprised by sin and that the plan is even better, like the, the future is even better. Uh, and that is that is the fact that God has put on flesh. This isn't just another man. He is truly man, but he's not just any man, mm-hmm. right? He is the God man, and therefore we are united to all that it is for him to be the God man, while not becoming fourth members of the Trinity, of course. Right. So, all right, well, Luke, I think we can, uh, we can wrap it up there. Uh, so we will close you as we normally do with the benediction or the doxology from 2 Corinthians 13. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.